Well, guys, if you have a Bible, and we hope that you do, would you grab hold of it and would you join us this morning? We are in the book of 2 Corinthians. Sunday mornings, that's where we've been. We've been making our way uh, verse by verse through this book. It's obviously been a couple of weeks because I was away on vacation, so we're joining back uh, where we left off, and we're hoping you're there with us. So we hope you brought a Bible and you're joining us there. If you didn't, there are Bibles in front of you, in the chairs in front of you, a page number on the screen, so you can get there rapidly. Uh, if you want to use an electronic device and follow along in a Bible app, that works as well. All that our, our desire is right now is that you would have a Bible and you would be following along and that God would speak to you through his word. That invitation here, that invitation to our overflow online, the same. We are just inviting you to be in the word of God with us. This is a time where we want to, you to see and hear what God has to say through his word. And so we really believe that there's power in just following along and seeing it in your own Bible. So we hope that you would open that up as well as we long for God just to communicate to each of us what he has for us. So let's take a moment and ask him for that. I'm going to lead you in prayer, but let's ask that God would make what he wants you to hear and what he wants me to hear known to us this morning as we study his word. Let's ask him. Father, I thank you right now for this opportunity. I thank you for your word. Lord, it is truth. You said if we would know the truth, it would bring us freedom. It would bring us life. I think about your word that's alive and powerful, that works inside of our hearts, and I step towards that, and I ask for it. God, I ask that you would take your word and just help us to understand it this morning. Help us to get what you're saying, but do so much more. Lord, then take it and, and help it to, to con just change us from the inside out to be making us into the people you have us to be. Lord, I ask that you would cause every one of us to hear from you. Lord, I recognize how amazing that is because at the same moment, there will be things that you'll emphasize to different people. As we study these truths together, part of it will just land in powerful ways if we would but hear your voice. Lord, that that would happen for every one of us, I'm asking. Give us ears to hear what your Spirit is saying to us. Work in this moment so that what you would communicate to us, we would understand. Lord, I ask for help in that. I ask for strength in that. I ask for your word in that and your work just to take place in this moment through your word in our lives. We ask for that together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So question for you as we begin our Bible study this morning, when people talked about you this week, I wonder what it is they said. Oh, it probably happened, right? I mean, you know what that is, that kind of place where you feel like your ears are burning kind of reality and somebody's talking about you. Probably for everybody in this room, it happened at some space. Somebody in your family, somebody in your neighborhood, somebody in your acquaintances, somehow you came up in the conversation and they talked about you. And in those conversations, sometimes what's being asked is kind of why you are who you are, how that works, or maybe we could say it differently. What makes you tech? What makes, what makes that work? Hey, probably happened for some of you this week that that was what was asking, that people were looking at your life and asking those kinds of questions, and that's exactly where Paul finds himself. Hey, as we jump into our Bible study this morning, as we jump into this section, Paul just makes some observations that kind of wonders about the church here in the city of Corinth. Hey, quick reminder, Paul planted this church in the city of Corinth. He was the one that kind of laid the foundation of it, but being a, a, a missionary and one who continued to take that gospel into other regions, he's now traveled beyond that, but he's writing a letter back to this church that he founded. And he's writing a letter back to it, and in the midst of it, he begins to make some questions about how they see him, how they're talking, if you will, about him. Hey, why don't you notice it with me? Pick it up there in chapter 5. We'll start in verse 11 for a tiny bit of context. He says, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are well known to God. And I also trust that we are well known in your consciences. For we did not commend ourselves again to you, but give you opportunity to boast on our behalf that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are of sound mind, it is for you. Wow. 
hey, kind of a wild little thing. I mean, it's going to connect in a moment, so hang on with me for a moment. You're kind of thinking, well, like, why do we even have to think about this? No, it's going to be helpful, but at that moment, we want to just kind of build our way there. What's Paul saying? Well, as he thinks about the church there in Corinth, he's telling them that his hope is that they know him that they would know who he is, at least in conscience. Hey, pick it up again there in verse 11. He tells us in the middle of the verse, he says, but we are well known to God. Hey, that's worth quickly pausing and saying absolutely true. God knows you. He knows everything about you. There's not anything about who you are is a mystery to God. He knows everything that's taking place. And in this context, Paul has just kind of pictured that moment that we're going to stand before Jesus. We'll come back and talk about that in a minute. But he just simply says, hey, God knows us. Like, he knows us. But then he says, and I also trust that we are well known in your consciences. So he's writing to the church there. He says, I'm hoping that you know us as well, that you would know us in your conscience. Now, this is a very well-articulated thought uh, that I just want to quickly unpack for you. What does it mean for someone to know you by their conscience? Well, a conscience. It's that which God gave us. It's not God. It's, it's kind of a barometer of right and wrong that lives inside of us that can be and should be informed by the Scriptures. And uh, it is that what some would say is an internal policeman where, you know, kind of when you are doing something wrong, your conscience kind of goes, you know, kind of a little warning light goes off. Or when you're doing something right, it's that kind of approval that says, hey, this is the right thing. Well, Paul says it this way. He says, hey, I hope that we are well known to your conscience. Why say it that way? Well, let's just be very, very clear. God knows you perfectly. Nobody else does. God knows you perfectly. Nobody else knows you the way that God knows you. Nobody. And so Paul's not saying, hey, you know everything about me. You, you fully understand who I am. He knows they don't. But he's hoping that they know him in a way that when they think about the Apostle Paul, they do so with a good conscience. That there's that sense that Paul comes up in conversation is like, oh, he's a good guy. Like, he's one of the good ones. I mean, he's one of those guys that is doing well, like, that, that we know him. No, we don't know everything about him, but there's that sense when he's coming up in conversation that it's that sense of, like, oh, I know him. I, I, I know, I, he, he's one of the, I, I recognize who he is. So much so, Paul says, I hope that it gives you a place that you're almost just proud, that you're looking and say, hey, I know this guy. He's doing well. He's doing well. Hey, notice how he says it. It says in verse 12, for we do not commend ourselves again to you, but give you opportunity to boast on our behalf, that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. That's a mouthful, and there's a bunch of really good stuff in there, but it would be helpful if we just give it to you briefly. So if you've been with us already in the book of 2 Corinthians, you have known and you will get to know better that one of the things that happened after Paul left the church there in, 2 Corinth, in Corinth and has now continued on in other places, other people have come in, and some people have come in who are false teachers, who have come in uh, to draw attention to themselves, to build their own kind of following. They've been attacking Paul, telling people, hey, Paul's lousy, you know, he's a lousy guy, you should follow us, we're better uh, kind of deal. And really, they've kind of created what he says is a boasting in appearances, like it's all for show. It's all just for externals. It's all this place of, uh, of pretending to be what's not. And that reality is true. <laughs> that, that happens uh, today in the same places where people do things for external reasons. And Paul says, I hope when you're thinking about me, you are able to say, hey, no, he's not one of those guys. He's not, he's not pretending. He's not phony. I mean, he's, he's somebody who's really seeking to live for Jesus. And that place where he says, I hope you would have that which you would be proud. He then even gives possibility. He says, maybe for some of you, you'd look and say, well, maybe he's crazy. Verse 13, if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. He says, maybe it's that space of you looking at this and you think, hey, you know, all that this is would be that way where you'd look and say, hey, you know, Paul, you're kind of a little bit bizarre. Hey, quick FYI. I, I just, I don't know if it happened. I don't know if anybody, when they think about you, thinks you to be a little bit bizarre. You know, maybe thinks about you, oh, you're, you're like, you're like really, you're like a Jesus freak. I mean, you're like a little bit overboard, like you're a little bit too much kind of deal. And I just want to pause and say, if that's so, you're in good company. Paul was. Hey, when Paul was there standing before Festus, the, the governor, it tells us in Acts 26 that as he's making his defense, Festus says with a loud voice, Paul, you are beside yourself, FYI. You're crazy. Uh, much learning is driving you mad. 
I mean, Paul, you're, you're just, you're, you're crazy. Paul says, hey, I'm not crazy, you know, and he gives a good answer for why he's living his life that way. But for some, that's how they saw him. Paul was seen that way. Jesus was seen that way, even by some of his own families. It tells us in Mark 3, when his own people heard about this, they went out to lay hold of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. <laughs> like, he's just lost it. Like, he's just a little bit crazy. Paul says, hey, maybe when you think about me, that's what you're thinking. Hey, maybe you think, well, you know, he's just lost it. Well, if you, you think that, he says, hey, I've lost it for him. You know, I, I, it's for God's sake that I'm seeking to live my life. Or maybe, he says, when you think about me, you're, you're doing so in a way that would think I have a sound mind. Verse 13, again, if we're beside ourselves, it's for God. If we are of sound mind, it is for you. Hey, if you think, his is, hey, you look at Paul or look at someone and say, hey, I think they're doing well. He says, hey, then that's for your benefit. God's working things for, for your good. And he's going to talk more about that uh, in, in the coming verses. But he's saying it's, it's really for that space. Okay, so pause with me for a moment. I, I don't know. Maybe you're already at this moment thinking, Jim, I don't even know where this Bible study is going. Like, why do we even have to think about this? Hey, it's just simply true. Hey, people think about us. Uh, people talk about us, and it's happened even for you this week. And I don't know how that lands for you. I don't know how it looks where you think, hey, some people may be proud of you. Maybe they think you're crazy. Maybe they think you're wise. How does that whole thing work? Well, please understand, Paul's not saying this is an endorsement. In fact, I would go so far as to say that I need to tell you this morning that pleasing people, living for what people think about you, it is a very dangerous trap. Proverbs gives it to us this way. It says, the fear of man is a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. Hey, if you're living and you're worried about what people think about you and that becomes a driving factor in your life, the Bible tells you, hey, that's a trap. That'll, that'll bring you down. That'll bring pain, sorrow, and suffering into your life. But if you fear God, you can be rescued from living in a way that worries about what people think about you. Now, Paul's living a good way, by the way. He unpacks it in a lot of ways. In fact, I think about how he'd say it in Galatians. He says, do I now persuade men or God? Do I seek to please men? For if I still pleased men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. You can't please both. Uh, you can't live for people and, and their pleasure and God. You really can only live for one. Paul says, if I was still trying to make people happy and I still live my life so that, you know, everything was aimed at that way, I would not be able to be a good servant of Jesus. I have to live for him first. I have to live for that audience of one. I have to live for that space of saying, God, I want to please you, and, and I want that to be there. I'm not driven or am I living for what people are saying? Now, I say all that to tell you that's exactly what Paul is kind of beginning to articulate here. He's going to say it here. He's going to say it throughout the letter of 2 Corinthians. But if you're not paying attention, you might not catch it. You might not catch, okay, so why did we just say this? And how does this connect to where we've gone? Well, that's what we want to talk about for a few moments as we think about this whole thing. We're thinking about people who talk about us and you know, that, that pleasing people is a dangerous trap. God's going to call us to help us to see what does make Paul tick, what is a driving factor for his life, and he gives it to us this way. Why don't you notice it with me there in verse 14? For the love of Christ compels us, because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. The love of Christ, he says. Hey, it's the love of Christ that compels me. That if you're trying to figure me out, Paul says, if you wanted to understand how I work, hey, this is what's taking place. Well, that's what we need to figure out and kind of figure out what that looks like and how that works in Paul's life and how it can work in our life. But let me just pause once more and kind of just back up for a moment and just talk about its context. Quick FYI, hey, understanding a Bible verse is always one of the most essential keys of ever understanding the Bible is to understand how it's given in its context. Taking verses out of its context is so often what leads people to misunderstanding the Scripture, getting it out of where they are. So what we need to think about is what brought us here. Now, that's always a good thing, but it's specifically good because, well, again, I was on vacation for a couple weeks, and so we've been out of it, and so you might not even remember how this flows. So let's kind of walk through the argument 
argument that Paul has been building up to this moment. We'll go back to chapter 14, and he began to just remind us about our lives. He tells us there in verse 14, verse 16, uh, Therefore, we do not lose heart, even even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. Truth. Every one of us is dying. That's just simply the way it works. And and he helps us to think this through in such an honest way. He says, day by day, our outward man is dying. We are on a course right now that is not getting better and better. Our our physical bodies are on a a course that is heading towards death. So if you could look at today rightly from a biblical lens, you would say, hey, today, I'm dying. I am literally, I mean, I'm perishing. I mean, literally, that's the road that I'm on. But inside, the inward man in Christ, that's renewed every day. That is upheld by God every day. And so he just gives us this reality of understanding, hey, to see life that way, to understand the journey that you and I are on with a biblical lens and truth lens, it's just helpful to be able to speak the truth. And by the way, that's just helpful all the way around. I mean, for many people, this is one of those subjects they don't talk about. The Bible does. And he says, hey, here's the thing. You're dying. But not only are you dying, you are actually going to die. And so he gives us a biblical lens of it as we begin there in chapter 5, and we worked through it. You can go down to verse 8 and just notice where he says, we are confident. Yes, well-pleased rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. If you know Jesus this morning, if you're a Christian, here's the thing. In believing in Jesus, death was defeated. So it no longer is our enemy. So what's going to take place for you is you are going to die. And that moment that you die, when this life is over, at that very moment, you're going to be in God's presence because of Christ, because of what he has done. If you don't know Jesus, that is not your reality. And we're pleading with you today to say, hey, this is the biggest deal that you could ever face. There's nothing more important than you understanding. hey, you're going to die. What's going to, what's going to happen when you die? What, what's going to happen in that moment? But if you're a follower of Jesus, it's not something we're meant to be afraid of. It's like, okay, I'm going to die, and I'm going to be with Jesus. The very moment the very moment that I take my last breath here, I'm going to be present with Jesus, and that understanding of life is meant to be ours. But after we die, one of the next things that's going to happen is we're going to stand before Jesus and give an account. That The Bible tells us there's appointed unto man once to die, and after that is a judgment. And so Paul just takes us forward and causes us to think about that there in verse 10. Or I'll begin in verse 9 for context. Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what He has done, whether good or bad. If you know Jesus, there's a day coming that after you die, you're going to stand before Jesus and give an account. Now, we talked about this last time. If this is brand new information for you, it is something you absolutely need to understand. And if you need to go back and get get the last message and you can find it online, understand this. There's a day coming. It's a day where we're going to stand before the judgment seat, or sometimes called the Greek word there is bima, the bima seat of Christ. But it's not a place where you're going to be judged for your sins. No, the Bible's really clear about this. If you know Jesus... If you have believed upon Jesus, your sins are forgiven, all of them. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You'll never give an account for that. But you are going to stand before Jesus, and you're going to give an account for your life for what you've done, what God has done in you. And it's going to be a space for what God has done in you that Jesus will be able to reward you, that he'll be able to say, well done good and faithful servant. You are faithful like you did this. It's a, it's a holy moment. It's a serious moment that, that Paul is inviting us to understand, but it's coming. So pause with me again and understand none of these things are speculation. None of them are things that aren't true for everybody in this room. Everybody in this room. You are dying, you are going to die, and you're going to stand in judgment. If you don't know Jesus, you are dying 
who are going to die, and you're going to stand before the judgment seat of God the Father. And in that moment, you're going to be judged and sent into eternal hell. Nothing should be more scary to you than that. It is the scariest reality that can exist, and we plead that you would be rescued from it. But if you know Jesus, that doesn't exempt you. You're still dying. You're going to die. You're going to face a judgment, but it's a, it's a different judgment. It's a reward. And so there's a space of saying, hey, these things are real. Like these are the the things that you should be thinking through and and processing your life through, which is where Paul takes us. It's as if he asked the question, so how do we navigate this? From the the moment that you and I are standing right now in this place that we're dying, going to die, stand before Jesus, how do we do that? It's just, you know, and he kind of asked the question. Lots of people have opinions about Paul. Maybe they think he's crazy, or maybe they think he's wise, or maybe they don't understand. But Paul, as he's looking at this course that's in front of him, he tells us how I am navigating the course. He says, this is the love of Christ. It, it's that which is compelling me. It's that which is constraining my life. He says, in this sense, this is how I'm doing that road. And I want you to see it with me this morning. And again, I want you to see it so you understand what Paul is saying about his own heart, but I'm kind of asking, what about you? You're dying. You're going to die. You're going to stand before God. How are, you, how, are you, how are you navigating that? How are you navigating what that road looks like? How are you navigating the days that are in front of you? How are you going to do that? Well, Paul's telling us again for him, he tells it to us this way in verse 14, for the love of Christ compels us. Let's think about that for a moment. So the love of Christ, the love of Christ that's laid out here. Hey, Bible question for you. Hey, question for you to think through. When we say the love of Christ, when it's articulated like this, are we talking about his loving us? That we're saying, okay, so Christ loves me. Is that what we're saying? Or are we talking about us loving him? When we say the love of Christ, are we saying, hey, we love Jesus? Which one is it? Well, simple answer Yes, it is both of them. It's why it's kind of put that way. It's why it's unpacked this way that he's saying this love that we have, that's him loving us and us loving him is packaged in a place of saying, hey, this is the love of Christ because they are intricately and wonderfully connected. I love the way it gives it to us in 1 John where it simply gives it to us this way. We love him because he first loved us. Hey, make no mistake. If you love Jesus here this morning, you didn't initiate that. He did. He loved you before time. He loved you and sent his son for you. If you love Jesus here this morning, your love is only a responsive love. His love begins it. His love is is the source and, and, and power that is that. It always begins with him first, that he loves us when we're unlovable. He loves us when there's nothing good about us. He loves us and sent his son to die for us. He loves us, and yet if we love him, it's connected to that, where he says, hey, we love him because he loved us, that, that it's his love that compels my love. That it's his love that I get to know that causes me then to love him. That's why one of the great things that we need in our Christian lives is to know that love more. That what we greatly need is to understand how very much God indeed does love us. Paul has a great prayer in Ephesians 3 where he simply just is praying for the church there. We're praying for it even now. He says, I'm just praying that you may be able to comprehend with all the saints, what is the width and length and depth and height, to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Wow. He talks about it just a couple of verses before, the saying, hey, you're, you're grounded in his love. Like you are one that has been made into the love of God, and that's the basic of who you are. But he says, I'm praying for you. You just need to know it more. You have no idea how much God loves you. You really don't. He says it's actually incomprehensible to you. It's actually that which, you, which passes knowledge. But he, he just gives it almost as if you could put dimensions. If you could say, how, how tall is it? How wide is it? How, how deep is its breadth? He says it's unknowable, but I want you to know it more. I'm praying that you would know how incredible God's love is. He says I want you to be able to comprehend with all the saints what is this love of Christ. And the more that you know that, it prompts in us that place where we get to walk in that greatest commandment, 
where Jesus said, you'll love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. This, Jesus says, is the first commandment. It's the greatest. There's nothing more important than this. It's nothing more just what God would have for you in this place where you'd say, God, I love you. I love you with everything I am. I love you with all that is inside of me. God, it, it, it's, it's that that is, is there. That's what Paul's un- unpacking for us here. He's saying, hey, this is what we have. This love of Christ where we know his love, where we're not loving him, that is so desperately what we need and, and where we need to stay. In fact, I like the way that Jude kind of gives it in the book of Jude, tells us, but you, beloved, building up yourselves in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking unto the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. Wow. He says, hey, you beloved, if you're a follower of Jesus, hey, if this is you, keep yourselves in the love of God. Stay there. Like, don't wander from that. Don't let anything move you away from that. Like, just as much as you can, say, God, I want, God, I want to know your love, and I want that to be that which is in my life. It's that which we need. It's this place where we love him, and, and he loves us, that is absolutely the essential place of life, that it is, is the very relationship that God has for us with him, just knowing him, loving him, him loving us. That's meant to be that space where we stay, and, and that's what we have. Well, Paul is looking on this and saying, so that, that love of Christ, this God loving me and me loving him, he tells us that this is that which compels him or constrains him. You might just notice again the words there in verse uh, 14, for the love of Christ compels us. That's the New King James Version. You might have a different version that says constraining, and there's a number of ways that this Greek word can be unpacked. In fact, it probably has three angles to it that are all a part of it, that it might just be helpful for you to think through for a moment. When we think about something that is compelling, we think about something that is constraining, it has the idea of power, that when you think about something that's compelling something, it has the idea of something that energizes. That is, well, using it as a picture, the wind that would fill the sail of a ship and, and, and drive it forward. That which gives energy and compels it so it could move. That which would do, they says, hey, the love of Christ is that which pushes us and helps us and, and, and gives us energy and gives us strength so we can move forward in everything that God has for us. The love of Christ is compelling. But it's not just compelling, it's guiding. The idea of compelling in a little bit and constraining has the idea of direction to it. And so if we're using the same kind of illustration, not only is it the wind in the sail, it's the rudder in the ship. It's not only that which is empowering, but also steering the, the course so that as you're navigating the course across the waters, it would be that where you're saying, okay, this is steering. This is what's guiding my life. This is how I'm making the choices that I'm making. Now, again, that's where Paul's thinking because he's, they, he's asking, so what do people think about me? Do they think I'm crazy? Do they think I'm wise? Do they think, you know, what, where is it going? He says, I'll tell you where I am. Hey, it's the love of Christ that's empowering me. It's the love of Christ that's guiding me, but it does a little bit more. It has the idea of constraint and the idea of of focus and, and binding. And it's this really powerful picture that's a little bit hard to articulate because it has the idea of funneling something down. Uh, kind of giving it kind of a place of, of both focus and direction. Maybe the easiest way is just to ask you to imagine it with me for a moment. Imagine maybe you going home and you go back out in your front yard or your backyard and you grab a, a hose and maybe you're needing to water something. You turn it up to full pressure. It's not got enough pressure to you know, reach where you want. And so maybe you've done what most of us have done. You reach down and you put your thumb over the end of the hose to constrain it you know, to to give it a little bit more push, and then that water begins to really spray forth because now as it's under constraint, it's it's kind of giving it power. It's moving it forward into a way that the constraining place of that gives it both focus and direction. Paul's saying, this is who I am. This is me. This is my life. It's, It's God's love. It's the love of Christ that is compelling me, constraining me, guiding my life. It's that that is causing me to live the life that I'm living. Charles Spurgeon, in his sermon on this passage, said it this way. It says, the love of Christ had pressed Paul's energy into one force, 
turned them into one channel, and then driven them forward with a wonderful force till he'd become a mighty power for good, ever active and energetic. It's this that guided him. It's this that compelled him. It's this that drove his life. It's this that was helping him live the life that he lived. It was the love of Christ that was bringing all of that to to, to bear into his world, and he's inviting you and I to see that, to see what that looks like to see where that is and to see that this love of Christ is meant to be that which does that. And I pause for a moment because I just want to tell you, I, I want to say this better than I'm saying it. I think about just the life that he's offering to us and it's such a superior way to live. It's the way the Christian life is meant to be lived. It's so much better than legalism or law or people living by any other thing. The Christian life rightly lived is meant to be lived this way. And I want to say that well, and I don't know how. I just got to be honest, this is a huge thing. This is not a minor point. This is one of those points that is much of the New Testament that, that draws us into a place that invites us to understand the liberty that's ours in Christ, if you know Jesus, the freedom with which we now get to live. And yet it's a freedom that, that's meant to be driven not by law or legalism, but by love, that, that we get to live our life not trying to earn God's favor, but enjoy God's favor. We get to live our life where, where it's the love of God that is moving us forward. You know, I, I, I would love right now as I'm saying this that that just kind of lands. And here's the thing. For somebody here this morning, maybe some of you are hearing this and you're thinking, that's me. That, that, that's how I'm trying to... That's, that's a description of how Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday look for me. I, I, it's the love of Christ that is moving my life forward. And if that is you, well done, keep doing it. But I want to honestly say for some of us, we recognize, huh, that doesn't necessarily look like what I'm doing. Sometimes it happens, probably for all of us in places, that we begin to live the Christian life out in a way that's not the way God intended. Uh, we begin to live it out as a list of rules of what we have to do and and what we can't do, uh, of what God wants for us, and everything becomes kind of check marks and, you know, okay, I I went to church. Christians are supposed to go to church. I did that. I read my Bible, and yeah, and and then there's things I can't do. You know, Christians aren't allowed to do those things, and I don't do them, you know, because I want God to be mad at me, and and we kind of have this place of living our life based on rules. Uh, based on either biblical rules or rules of our own creation. And the Bible pictures this as living by burden and legalism and law. And I just want to tell you, that's miserable. And it's not what God has. It's not the life that he has for you. He, Jesus came if you, and he died for our sin to rescue us from all the handwriting that was against us from a life that's lived that way. So it's no longer being lived, you know, to earn God's favor where we're thinking, hey, that's, you know, what I'm doing. Instead, it's now that he has saved us so that the love of God is meant to be that which guides our lives so that we would be able to say things like, I come to church because I love God. I love him and I love worshiping him and I want to please him and I read my Bible because I love him. And I want to hear his voice. You know, I, I, I don't do it because I have to. I don't do it because I'm in trouble if I don't. I don't do it because he's going to, you know, maybe, you know, send me to, you know, remedial hell camp or whatever. You know, I mean, it's not going to happen that way. It's like, no, that's not how I, I'm not afraid of him. I love him. And so I'm going to make choices. And sometimes those choices are going to help me choose between right and wrong. And, and Paul's saying, hey, the reason I make those choices is because I love him. Like, why would I do that when I love Jesus? Like, I, love, I mean, it, it's because he loves me and I love him. And that's now becoming the thing that, that powers my life, that helps me to live my Christian life because I, I'm not, I'm, I want to please him because I know him. My life is now lived not by law or legalism, but by love. That's an incredible thing. That is an absolutely incredible thing. And, and again, maybe, maybe you have something of that here this morning. And if you do, I just want to tell you, keep doing it, do more of it. You need to know more of it. And maybe you look on this and say, Jim, I don't even know what that looks like. Well, it would be good for you just to admit that and come and say, hey, I need this. Because this is power. I mean, this life that God has for us, where we say, hey, it's the love of Christ that now becomes that which guides my life. I, I'm living my life from this moment that I have where I'm dying, and I'm going to die, and I'm going to face Jesus. How do I do that? How am I navigating that road? By loving Jesus, 
by, by, by knowing his love and, and loving him. And, and that's what's going to give me the choice. That's going to help me navigate this whole road. That's the space that it has, this passion that is meant to be there because it's life lived the way it should be lived. Now, as much as he communicates that reality, he wants us to understand not only is that right, not only is it a passion that God has for us, it is absolutely reasonable. I mean, it, is, it just makes sense that this is the life that God has for us. Understand it as he kind of unpacks it for us there. Just go back and notice in verse 14, for the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus that if one died uh, for all, then all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. All right, so let's just think about this. Maybe we've already done enough. Maybe you're like, okay, Jim, I get it. I've, I've heard what I needed to hear this morning, and I've, and I've encouraged you in loving Jesus, and you're there. Or maybe you're struggling with it, and it, something pulls back, and he just wants to say, hey, this, this makes sense. This makes sense. This is the reasonable way for a Christian to live their life. Why? Well, because we look at this. We say, well, Jesus died. He died, and when he died for sin, he died for all of our sin. He died for all of our sin. And it's a hard thing to wrap our minds around at times, but past, present, future. If you're a follower of Jesus, all of your sin. He died for that. So much so that when he died, it's as if you could look upon your sin and all that that is, and it died with him. It, it, it died so that all that that is is, is now no longer uh, being held accountable to you. Think about it this way. When Paul would say it in Romans, he unpacks it in a much bigger section, but I'll just give you a verse out of it in Romans 6. He says, knowing this, that our old man, that person that we were before Jesus, that person that we are outside of Jesus, our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. He says, here's this thing, this old man that we were, he died for that. So in a really powerful way, it died. It's gone, and it will be gone, so that your sin, all of it, all of it, is paid for by him, so that when you die and you stand before Jesus, that's not going to be laid at your account. It's dead. It's gone. It's paid for by, cross, by the cross. Jesus, the gospel, ha has done that incredible work so that that's no longer there. That's no longer who we are. That's what happened. That died, and in that death of Christ, not only did all of that go away, now because he lived, we get to live for him. Again, just going back so you can follow the logic. It says it this way again in verse 14, for the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus. If one, that is Jesus, died for all, then all died. Everything that he died for, everything that, that, that was that, he died, and he died for all that, verse 15, those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. This is one of those verses that's just so well said, and I don't know how it just lands for you. I'm just going to be honest with you. It probably, for a few of you, maybe let's just say, just a guess, 25% of you, this is enough. Like, you just heard it, and you're like, boom, that's it. That didn't make sense to me. Like, I'm totally down with that. That is exactly, I mean, you, it, it just makes sense. In fact, for somebody here this morning, maybe this is like your life verse. This is one of those verses that is one of those kinds of things that would say, who am I? Like, how do I do, what is my life? What, how do I do it? It says, the love of Christ, it compels me. He died for me, so I'm living for him. End of story. That's like my life. This is, what, this is how I do Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and how I'm going to live the rest of my life. He gave everything for me, and it just makes sense that I'm living my life now for him. So again, if that's you and you just totally get that, good. Land it, hold it, keep it, bless it, make it what you're doing. But if you're maybe, if I'm just guessing, the, the other 75% that you're kind of listening and something's kind of just going askew in your mind, because that's just how it works sometimes. Sometimes our brain, maybe we're rebellious, maybe our old, old man is there and we're like, huh, this sounds weird. Like, I don't, know how to, I don't know how to get there. Let me give it to you in three directions. 
that hopefully will be helpful and, and maybe pull all of us at least to understand it. Three directions that will try to say the same thing in another way that maybe will work. Hey, the first one's found in Romans chapter 12, where Paul says it this way, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. So for you Bible students, maybe you'll understand, this is a pivotal moment in the book of Romans. Uh, the book of Romans is maybe the letter that unpacks the weight and the glory of our salvation more than anything else, just how incredibly powerful the gospel is. And so for 11 chapters, uh, the book of Romans has been explaining what Christ did for us. He unpacks for the first three chapters that we're all sinners, so that you get the end of a chapter three, it's like, we're all in trouble. Man, there's no one who is not in trouble. We are all, you know, by, by, by our sin, we are, we are broken, and everybody is in the same camp of, of desperately needing Jesus. So where do we find hope? Romans 5 and 4 and 5 come and say it's only by faith. The only way that we can be right with God is that we believe in what Jesus has done for us, that we believe the gospel, that God sent his son, and Jesus paid the whole price for our sin. And if we believe that, that, that's what brings us into life. Romans 6, 7, and 8, he helps us understand how that lives its way out, how that continues to work its way out in our life. And then chapters 9, 10, and 11 kind of take us into just the, the, the sovereign plan of God and reminding us he keeps all of his promises, and that just gives us weight and strength into this moment. And for you who, have, who are good Bible students, you're kind of tracking with me. If you're not, hang on for a moment. Just understand, hey, he did everything. So Romans 12 now becomes this thing that says, now what do we do? And for the last four chapters, he talks about how we respond uh, to God's grace. And so he begins, it says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by God's mercies, because he's treated you in a way that you don't deserve to be treated. He has been merciful to you. And I'm just telling you, give your life to him. Like, on, on his mercies, you should then, your right response is to say, well, then, God, I'm going to give you me. You know, you've given everything for me. I have life and eternity and, and, and everything that's there. It just makes sense. It's just reasonable, he says. Right at the end of that, it's a reasonable service that I would say, God, I'm going to give you me as a living sacrifice, not to you know, die on an altar, but to say, I'm going to live my life for you. And he goes on to say in the next verse that we're not going to be you know, pressed into the world's mold. Instead, we're going to be transformed, and we'll prove that which is good and acceptable and perfect. But our life is being lived by saying, it just makes sense to me. It, it makes sense that I, if Christ gave everything for me, that I should give my life to him and say, God, I want to live my life for you. It's a reasonable, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a rational response to the gospel. It's a rational response to what God has said. And so maybe for someone here, that just, again, hearing that in another way says, hey, that makes sense. Okay, Jesus gave everything. I live my life now as an offering back to him to say thank you. And I love you. Thank you for everything you did. Let's try it another way. So Peter kind of brings the same argument in a different direction. He would say it this way. He says, Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. For he who suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Without spending a whole bunch of time in this, understand, he just basically said the same thing that we're saying. He just did Romans 6 in a different way and says, Okay, just get your mind around this. Christ gave everything for you. And he suffered in the flesh Get your mind in that same place, into the place where you would recognize you died with Christ, your sin, everything is laid there. And, and if you can get there, if you can get there into this space where you would recognize who he is, it'll rescue you from wasting your life in sin. It'll rescue you from sin because he's, he's rescued you from that. The, the, the very weight of the cross will draw you through this so that he would say that he no longer should live the rest of his time for the flesh and the lust of men, but for the will of God. He says, here's what I, where, I, where we come and say, okay, I'm not going to waste the rest of my life. I'm not going to waste the rest of what it is. I mean, there's stuff back there behind me I can't fix before I knew Jesus and even since knowing him, places that's not there. But I don't want to live the rest of my time that way for what people want. I want to live for God's will, for we have spent enough of our past lifetime doing the will of the Gentiles. When we walked in lewdness and lusts and drunkenness and revelries and drinking parties and abominable idolatries. Again, I just like it. I just, I just like these words. And they just want to tell you, maybe it's going to land for somebody else. And they'll just simply say, you've wasted enough of your life. You know, you've wasted enough of your life when you live for the things that don't satisfy. 
I mean, we look at this list of lewdness and lust and drunkenness and revelries and drinking parties, and we'd look and say, hey, that's living for sin. Those are the things that Jesus had to die for, and it's a waste. It doesn't satisfy. It doesn't bring life. It's emptiness. You know what? We've wasted enough time. We have wasted enough time in that. Instead, now we want to live for him. And he says, in regard to these things, uh, they think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipa- dissipation, speaking evil of you. He says, the world's going to look upon and they're going to say of you like they said of Paul. You're crazy. You're one of those Jesus freaks. You're weird. You know, I, I don't even understand why you are living the way that you're living. But he's saying, hey, why would I want to waste my life doing the things that didn't satisfy in the first place that Jesus died for? He died for all those things. So why should I live in those things? I'm going to live a very different life. I'm going to live my life no longer bound by those things, but the love of Christ compels me, would be in a way of saying, hey, that that would be the way that it would land, that I would sit there and say, why would I waste more of my life than I've already wasted, that is already being driven away, you know, by, by, by the blood of Christ that's paying for it? Why would I spend any more time in that? It just makes sense. It just kind of makes rational sense. Well, let me try one more way. So, in our Bible reading that we've been reading together as a church, a couple weeks ago we were in Chronicles, and in that we got to read through the lives of the kings, and they are always interesting and sometimes frustrating and a little bit scary. One of the guys that always just boggles my imagination uh, is a man named Amaziah. Some of you read through it there in Second Chronicles 25, and it says, Amaziah did what was right in the sight of the Lord, but not with a loyal heart. So pause and just think about it. This is God's kind of description of this man. He did what was right. He did what was right in God's sight. He just didn't stick with it. He didn't stay. He, he, didn't, he wasn't loyal to that, that even though God was good to him and there was a space that he knows it, he pulls away from it. And it's a crazy thing that happens. So Amaziah comes on the scene. If you read through that chapter, you'll know he ends up with a, in a battle with the Edomites and uh, immediately he begins to kind of hire uh, troops from the northern kingdom and, and a prophet comes to him and says, don't do it. Don't trust in the world. Don't trust in, in, in the arm of men. And, and the king says, well, what do I do? How do I face this battle? And what do I do with all the money that I hired all these other soldiers with? And uh, the man of God just says, hey, the Lord is able to give you much more. Like God could do this. And, and, and the idea is if you'll just trust him, if you'll rely on God, if you'll believe in him, not only can he provide everything you need, he can be the source of your success. He can be the, the, the thing that will give you victory. And here's this incredibly good moment. That's exactly what happens. Amaziah gathers the whole army of Judah together. He strengthens himself. He leads his people. He goes into the Valley of Salt. He kills 10,000 people uh, of Seir. He sees this incredible victory. And this is like one of those like, like great moments, right? I mean, it's like, okay, you believed God. You trusted in God. You, you started to trust in, in people, and you turned away from it. You believed God. God has come through. Uh, this should be one of those defining moments, right? It should be a defining moment that you would read this and think, and then as Amaziah trusted God the rest of his life. I mean, <laughs> that's how I like, you know, you know, it all goes good, you know, or whatever, you know, and they all lived happily together after or something. You know, it's like you, how you want the story to end, right? You're kind of like, that's what should have happened. It would make rational sense if Amaziah at this moment uh, just believed God more. It's like, you know, I should trust God more. That's, I mean, God's good. Like, his ways are good. I should, you know, rely more on him. That's not what he does. In fact, he does almost the most unthinkable thing that I could possibly think of. So it tells us, so it was, after Amaziah came from the slaughter of the Edomites, that he brought the gods of the people of Seir, that is the Edomites, set them up to be his gods and bowed down before them and burned incense to them. Now, I don't know about anybody else. I read this like, wait, what? Like, I mean, truth is stranger than fiction. I mean, it's like, who would, that doesn't even make sense. Like, what, you did what? So you defeat this enemy. Their gods weren't able to to, to rescue them. You defeat them, and then you get their gods? You bring those gods back to Jerusalem, and you set them up to be your gods, and you begin to worship them? I mean, this is unthinkable. This is like crazy. I mean, I don't know about anybody else. It's like, that's dumb. I can't believe this is going to happen. So much so that the prophet is sent back to Amaziah. He says, why have you sought the gods of the people, which could not rescue their own people from your hands? Like, what in the world are you thinking, Amaziah? 
Why would you ever, I mean, this doesn't even make sense. Why would you live your life this way? Amaziah responds, and he talked with the king and said to him, you know, have, you, have, have we made you the king's counselor? Cease. Why should you be killed? Like, this is his response. Like, stop talking. I'll kill you. Like, I didn't ask for your advice. I'm not listening. I made my choice. I'm going to worship the gods that I've chosen, and this is his undoing. If we had time, we'd read the rest of his life. He ends up in another battle, another war. This time, God doesn't help him. This time, God's against him, and he is roundly defeated, and, and, and he only becomes more unfaithful. He becomes increasingly unfaithful, so much so that his life ends in unfaithfulness, turning away from God. Tells us at the end of the chapter that the, uh, you know, the prophet tells him, sorry, he says, I know that God is determined to destroy you because you've not done this and you've not heeded my, my advice. And it says, at that time, Amaziah, tur- at the time Amaziah turned away from the fallen the Lord, they made a conspiracy against him in Jerusalem. He fled to Laish, and they sent, sent after him from Lachish and killed him there. Simply put, it's a terrible ending. This is not a happily ever after story. This is a terrible, I mean, it's like, what in the world? I mean, why would, it's unthinkable to look at somebody and think, hey, he did what was right in God's eyes, but he wasn't loyal. He didn't stick with God. He didn't hold fast to God. Turns away and instead turns to other, other gods, and that's how he ends his life. Now, I don't know about anybody else. I read this story, and I'm like, this is the dumbest story I've ever read. I mean, like, this is the dumbest way to live your life. Like, who would do that? Nobody would do that. And then I sadly have to recognize, no, actually people do. Um, It's been lived again. Here's the thing. I just want you to understand. So sometimes it happens. Somebody becomes a follower of Jesus. They come to an end of themselves. They've lived their life in partying and drunkenness and trying to find satisfaction in, in lust or other things, tried to earn their own salvation through religion. It doesn't work. They finally come to Jesus. They believe upon him, and, and they're saved. I mean, they're radically, wonderfully, gloriously saved. Uh, where, where, where everything, and, and you would think, okay, this is going to make sense now. Jesus is to you what nothing else ever was. You should live the rest of your life for him. And then crazy thing happens. There are believers sometimes that turn around and take the gods that were just defeated and set them up to worship them the rest of their life. You know, and, and, and take the, the, the gods of drunkenness or lust or something else. And, and, and you find yourself thinking, dude, that doesn't even make sense. Like, why would you go back to what, what, what was, was, was an enemy and, and couldn't satisfy anybody before? Why would you live your life that way? And sometimes people do. And yet, here's what I want you to think through with me. That is dumb. That is a dumb way to live your life. That makes no sense. That's what Paul's trying to tell us here. He's saying, hey, when I think about my life, I, 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 I'm thinking about it this way. Jesus gave everything for me. So it just makes sense. I want to live for him. I want to live my life for him. I want, to lo- I want to love him. That's what's compelling my life. This is what constrains me. This is how I make the choices I'm making. This is how I'm living my life because I get what he's done for me, and that compels my life into a different place. The better I see the cross, the better I see what Christ did for me. He died for me. It becomes that which changes the trajectory of my life, and it ought to. It ought to do that. So here's what I'm asking. You know, we think about this this morning. We think about all that this is. Where are you in this story? You know, maybe you're here this morning. You don't know Jesus. And we're just talking about this this morning. We're talking about some things, and I hope it makes some sense. Maybe you've looked upon Christianity. You've tried to figure it out. I just want to tell you, it all is about God sending his son. To, to die for us, to be what we could never do, that the gospel tells us that there's a way to be saved and he would rescue us from that, make us brand new, that, that we would stand before him forever. And if that's not where you are today, I just want to invite you to it. I'm going to tell you, nothing else could ever satisfy. Nothing else could ever be there. If you don't know that anymore about that, we just invite you to come up and talk to us about it later. But for most of you, you're believers. And so as we begin to wind this down, I'm going to invite you to close your Bibles, your notebooks, whatever it is you have open, and I'm just wanting to ask you, when, when, when you think about your life and how you're living the days that you're living and how you're navigating this road where you're dying, you're going to die, and you're going to face Jesus. So how, how, do, how do you navigate that? What, what, what's the thing that's making the choices for you? I just want to tell you it can be, it ought to be the love of Christ that compels you 
that you find yourself recognizing how incredibly much you are loved, how incredibly much God loved and sent his son for you, and even today is at work in that. And where it does rightly, it just compels this response that isn't, you know, I have to. It's I get to. It's not that I have to live a good life or can't do sinning. It's like, why would I want to do that? I get to live for Jesus. I love him. He satisfies. He's the thing that rescued me. I mean, it makes sense that my life now would be lived, you know, by, by his love. And so that now it's his love that guides my life. It's his love that constrains me. It's his love that gives power and, and strength into my days. And I just want to invite that to be you. Maybe it is. Maybe as you say this this morning, you think, hey, Jim, that, that is a good description of how I'm doing it. Or maybe you would be honest enough to say, Jim, I think I'm like 10% there. You know, kind of there, but I'm not all the way there. I'm, you know, 50%, I don't know. And just there's a place of saying, God, I'm not doing it the way I ought to be doing it. I'm not living my life this way because it's a, it's a better way of living where you fall back into some legalistic bondage of rules and regulations. It is death and, and emptiness. But to find your life saying, hey, it's, I love Jesus. I love him. He has loved me so much. And the more I know that, the more it just gives me strength in, in the, my, my days to do that. And I just want to invite you to lay your life before God and, and just ask for him to help that to be your reality, that you would be able to include your name in that and say, hey, it's the love of Christ that compels me because I figured it out. He gave everything for me, so I should live for him. Kind of makes sense, really. I just That's how I'm doing my life. And if that's where you're not, just that God would meet you in that. So quietly, would you take a moment, and wherever that is met you, and wherever your life is found, to just asking that he would strengthen that in you. I'll do the same thing. Again, just a quiet moment for us to pray, and then we'll close together and worship in just a moment. God, I thank you for your great love. You so loved the world, you sent your only begotten son. You revealed your love for us and that while we were yet sinners, you, you sent Christ and you died for us. There's no greater love than that. We unlovable, loved by you, that you would willingly give your life for us to pay the price for our sin, all of it, God, I pray that you'd help us to know that more. The simple reality is that we do not know it as much as we should. It's height, it's depth, it's width, it's breadth. It's so much beyond us. But I pray that we would understand more and more your great love for us. Love that rescued us and is at work in our lives now. Your love that is so great and and beyond all other descriptions. Would you help us to know it? And then, God, would you help us to love you in response? Would knowing the love that you have for us create within us that incredible love that now we live our life loving you? And this love that we have, knowing your love and loving you constrains, compels us. It just makes sense, Lord, that it would be this way. It makes rational sense that you died. We should live for you. You died for all the sin. Why would we want to spend any, any time more in those things that you died to get rid of? 
Lord, help us to live our lives now in response. Lord, I'm asking for the love of Christ to be that which empowers and guides and constrains our lives into a, a focused living for you. I hold before you because I know that's what you're telling us is possible. And so, Lord, where we're not there, you see us, you, you know us. We can't lie to you. Lord, if we're living less than this, would you just show us and help us to grow in it? That it would work in our lives, that we would not be like Amaziah, who lived so foolishly, who saw you work and then didn't hold on to you, turned away from you. Lord, help us to be rescued from such folly and that we would not waste the rest of our lives. God, I pray that you would just work good in us in this and help the love of Christ to compel us forward into a good way of living. Thank you that it's possible. Thank you that this is what you have for us. Would you make it so much more? I ask for that for me and for each of us here. And we ask it together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. May God meet you in that. May he draw you to all that that is. You have questions, hey, we're here. If again, you need prayer in this, we're here. If you're again, one of those outside of this, you don't know Jesus and you find yourself thinking, how does this even work and how do I get there? We'd love to talk to you more about Jesus. Come up after the service. Give us opportunities to share the gospel even more and walk with you in a space that we're longing for you to surrender. But right now, we just want to invite you in this closing moments just to respond to God in worship, that we just recognize who he is and do that together. So why don't you guys all stand? As we, as, as we close in worship and just honor him. As we do that, I just want to take a moment and bless you in God's name. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.